to the 43rd episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we discuss murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where I told you about the eccentric Phil Spector and the murder of beautiful model Lana Clarkson. Our show is often horrifying and graphic and we will use offensive language so if you have kids put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also we are passionate and always have been about true crime. But we have to warn you, sometimes we're going to make jokes and we're going to laugh during our podcast. Want to learn more about us? Well, you can at our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. You can find links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. If you'd like what you hear and you'd like to support us, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a five-star rating along with a comment, please. Also, please recommend our podcast to your friends. The more the merrier. Hey, Cindy, how's it going? It's going very well. How are you? I'm tired. I'm always tired. With the weather and the traveling, um, we had to go back to St. Louis this past weekend. It was great fun because we had my husband's brother was there and his sister was there. So it was kind of a little family reunion of sorts. So it was nice. nice. I'm sure his parents enjoyed that. Yeah, his dad had surgery yesterday. All went well. So, um, you know, he tries to go back once a month because they're... Older. No, well, they're older and his dad can't do all the things that he needs to do around the house. So at least he's got, you know, somebody coming up at least one weekend or every other weekend because, you know, if they all take turns and there they have it. All the kids oh. take turns to help out. There you go. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Yep. So what about you? Anything fun? I don't think so. No, just same old, same old. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know yeah. it's kind of all like running together yes yeah i'm i've been in a bit of a brain fog lately but it's okay so do you want to tell everybody about our upcoming 50th anniversary giveaway yes yes okay so um we are obviously upon our 50th episode like mercedes just said and if you're interested in qualifying for a goodie bag this is what you need to do before september 6 2020 this year yeah right number one Give us a five-star rating with a comment. Screenshot. Screenshot it after you've posted it. Number two, email that screenshot to us at a true crime podcast at gmail.com. Number three, include the following in your email. Again, the screenshot of your rating, your shirt size, and your mailing address. Because doesn't mean anything if we don't get your mailing address. Right. We can't send it to you if we don't know where you live. <laughs> yes. And number four, listen to the 50th episode, which will air October 6th. 2nd 2020 to hear if you are the lucky one of the lucky winners we're going to choose five right at least oh, yes okay. we'll have we'll have at least five but maybe some smaller goodie bags we i don't know yet we but we have some goodies planned because i did order some stuff that's on its way yes i'm excited yes. so we will post this also on our website and i know cindy's been posting it on our facebook page mm -hmm. so if you don't remember those four things that we need from you you can find it on any of those places yes so I have a good one for you again this weekend, you know. You. So as you know, I often look for murders and crimes that I've never heard of. And I actually stumbled upon this week's true crime by accident. And I might be the only person in the universe who had never heard of it because it was a sensational crime. It was splashed all over the media at the time, but I hadn't heard of it. So, you know, I, I tend to corner myself off from 
politics and the news and things like that anything that causes me anxiety gets shut down why do i love murder and crime so much right i know yeah so i have a soft spot in my heart for young people and this one especially those with tough lives and it seems that sometimes kids who experience the most traumatizing childhoods are responsible for the most heinous crimes they are yeah that's your favorite word right there heinous i know (laughs) rhymes with anus (laughs) okay so i just sometimes feel that kids who are impoverished you have traumatic childhoods often don't get a fair shake when it comes to justice and that's the case in this crime all right so here we go you ready i'm ready give it to me Okay, so this week's episode involves a group of six young misfits in and around Pikesville, Kentucky. This really is kind of coal country in the Appalachian area. That was their uh, mode of industry there. And before anyone corrects us, yes, we pronounce that differently in ever in other areas. Well, how do what Appalachian? What did I say? Appalachian. 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 Well, I actually, um, I actually live kind of in the region of Virginia. We always said Appalachian. I've always said that too, but I hear like, I have a friend who lives in Boone. They say it different. Okay. All right. (laughs) So, well, I mean, it seems like everyone has a negative, negative thing to say about people from this region, you know, but my heart all sexual abuse, domestic violence, poverty, child neglect, and incarceration of parents and loved ones just to name a few have you ever watched justified no the tv show no it um it was on fx but it takes place in in this region okay yes Mm -hmm. in in the hollers and like um, oh yeah and um they did mention some hollers here but our hollows but you know i'm not gonna go into that yeah they're not they're hollers yeah okay (laughs) they are are they? Yeah. You can holler to somebody else? They're they're not hollows. They're okay. Not, they're hollers. Okay. Yeah. They're right. like a valley, kind of like they're kind of down uh-huh. between like the Well, valleys. and this takes place on Payne Hollow's Hollow Road. I'm sure it's pronounced holler, but um, whatever the case. So I'm not it's sure. It's hollow. I don't think it's pronounced. I don't know. I'm not from that region, but mm. well, a very good friend of one of these myth, this six misfits told a reporter about this Eastern Kentucky region. She said, it's a place where people go to church on Sundays to make peace with the Lord and then go home and make war on each other. The men work hard or not at all, and either way, they don't make much. Money goes toward beer and anger goes toward whoever's around. That's why half the women in this town get beaten. The men are taking it out on them. And she added darkly, it's hard to find a woman in the region who hasn't been sexually abused. You name it, one of these kids experienced it, and as we know, the cycle is difficult to break. Um, She said, I hung out with a group of misfit kids. Oh, no, she didn't say that. I'm saying that. (laughs) I hung out with a group of misfit kids like these. Like, I didn't quite fit in. I had some things, and I'm just thankful that I was able to escape it. Some of my friends weren't able to. All right, so the supposed leader of this group of misfits was 18-year-old Natasha Cornett. Natasha was really the star of this show, the one that the media latched onto the most, mainly because she and her mom made themselves available to reporters. You know, they're the ones like when there's a reporter with a microphone, they jump up and they want to be on TV, right? They're like that. Now, Natasha's mom was Madonna Wallen, and she was born and bred in the same area, and she was not able to break the cycle of her own upbringing. A popular local pastor molested her when she was four or five, and nobody reported the incident or any incident like it in the 1940s. You just didn't report it. But her mom did take her to a doctor because she had physical trauma from the molestation. Mm. 
Most likely, she was never treated for the emotional trauma, which developed into some mental health issue that she has been treated for her throughout her life. Did you want to add something about hollers? So, a holler uh-huh. is a region dialect pronounced pronunciation of hollow, referring to... That's not what I'm wanting to say. But it's hollow. Right. They say so hollow is holler. Like, okay, like... Not like I'm hollering at you. Right. But it's a bat. It's like a... It's like my former mother-in-law used to call pillow. She called it a pillar. Don't get, don't forget your pillar. Yeah, it's just like a dialect. Yeah. But, th- but if you go there and they say so and so's from this area, it's from, he's from the hollers. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, it does. Okay. Uh huh. Sorry to interrupt. Okay. So when Madonna Wallen, this is Natasha's mom, when she was 17, she married a guy named Don Atkins and they had a daughter named Valina in 1960. Valina? Valina. Don was an abusive alcoholic. He constantly beat his family and threatened to kill them. But after one particularly aggressive fight in 1966, Madonna said enough. And she finally found the guts to fight back. He was coming. He was advancing towards her aggressively and she shot him with the shotgun. But he survived and he didn't come back home after that. So they got a divorce um, not long after that. She quickly remarried to someone else, a guy named Ed Wallen, who was just as abusive and filled with just as much hate, but he was molesting her daughter, Valina, Uh. while she worked. So in the mid-70s, Madonna worked at a convenience store, and there, there was a cop that came in regularly. His name was Ron Burgess, and he was nice to her. Yeah, you look pretty today. And she ended up having an affair with him so her daughter's at home with her husband getting molested and she's having an affair with a cop named ron burgess she fell in love with him quickly because he was nice to her and she wanted to have his baby now mind you again she's still married to hubby number two at this time but that didn't stop her by 1978 she was pregnant with ron's baby girl natasha who was born in 1979 now madonna's still married to this ed wallen who was aware that natasha was not his child he he they soon divorced and Madonna moved to a trailer near some holler and she did her best to support her two daughters as a single mom. As you can imagine, it wasn't easy. Yes. I was, when I was looking up Pikeville, like I wanted this. Uh-huh. So the guy who founded or co-founded Emory Riddle. Uh-huh. Embry, Embry or Emory. Okay. No, no Embry Riddle. It's okay. The, area, the aeronautical college uh-huh. is from there. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So she didn't have an easy life, and she experienced one setback after another. In 1985, she got she had brain um, I'm sorry breast cancer, which was successfully treated. Uh, she uh, was around this time that she did get a great job in an attorney's office, and she's like, I can support my children. We can have money left over, but it turned out to be another nightmare because he told her. Of course, she alleges that he demanded sex from her as she wanted to keep her job. She eventually sued him for sexual harassment, but the case was dismissed because he said it was consensual. So is she with Ron Burgess still? She is not with him anymore, no. Mm -mm. And it was just he never married her or anything like that. He was a part of Natasha's life, but I'm not sure how much of a part. Okay. Like, she knew him as her dad. Okay. Now, life got so hard for Madonna at one time that she even tried to end her life by swallowing a bottle of pills. And I'm going to go into that a little bit more. But, I mean, can you imagine growing up with this woman as your mom? No. I mean, like, nut case. So, her children did not come out of the situation unscathed, as you can imagine. Now, Natasha raised Madonna alone as a single mom in a trailer located on the outskirts of Pikeville, Kentucky. Madonna raised Natasha. 
did I say Natasha race? Well, it's probably a little both, honestly. Probably. You're right. right? right. Yeah. yeah. Madonna described elementary school Natasha as sweet little girl dressed like a sweet prep. She's like, she always dressed preppy. But Natasha had always heard voices and suffered suicidal thoughts. You know, but as I said, Natasha had always heard voices. She heard voices. She named some, some of them were angels. Some of them were demons. She actually wrote about some of these growing up. And she had conversations with them. They were real to her. Now, in an interview done in 1998, Natasha admits that she had always been suicidal, even at the sweet age of three. No way. She told a reporter, the first time I ever remember, and I'm quote, this is a quotation. The first time I ever remember trying to kill myself, I was in a crib and I tried to suffocate myself with a blanket. I remember that my mom was like yelling at me or something. She was just like. Like, I couldn't do anything right to her or for her, no matter how hard I try. It's like I couldn't make her love me. And one night, it just kind of all hit me. The reporter asked her how old she was at the time. Not, Natasha answered, um, I'd say around three or four. I'm sorry, I don't believe that. Well, I don't know if I believe it or not, but maybe that's a memory that she thinks she has. Maybe she was. I, I think that maybe it was a memory she thinks she has. Mm-hmm. Because at three or four years old, I don't think that you are aware of life or death well who knows I mean, being able to kill yeah. you i just don't believe okay that. yeah this is what she Unless told she was watching some serious now and i am going to talk a little bit later about her interview she gave a lot of interviews with the media after she got arrested mm-hmm. she's going to get arrested guys sorry mm-hmm. um, sorry for spoiling that surprise mm-hmm. um but her attorney like encouraged her to give media interviews because he was trying to make her seem insane And so he kind of fed her information. By the way, after this case, um, like the judge made, they made a ruling that no longer can the media interview people while they're waiting their court, their trial dates. In Kentucky? In in Kentucky. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's nationwide, but definitely in Kentucky. Oh, wow. All right. So she also told reporters and attorney that she was physically abused, stating that her mother would hit her with her fist when she was a small child. Now, her mom denied this. She told a reporter, I never hit her with my fists. I, I don't her. know. It's not with my fists. Right. She doesn't. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she thought I did, but I hit her always with my open hand. I've hit her with a plastic bat, ball bat, a hollow plastic ball bat. Maybe like throw a ball bat? Yeah. Oh, maybe throwed a few books at her. Let's see. I've whipped her hard. I really have. I've whipped her too hard. I know at times. Because she'd lose it, and I'd lose it, too. Holy crap. Now, later, one of the other girls involved, this girl's name is Crystal Sturgill. That's how I'm going to say her name. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. She was one of the six misfits that was involved in the case. She testified that she had recently seen Madonna beating Natasha. She was, like, 12 years older than him. Uh And so, when his brother would, like, be mean to him or whatever, and he was a little kid, he'd go get his wiffle ball bat, and he'd come out, and he said he'd raise it over his head, and he was like, I have the power of grace, (laughs) go Wow. I'm not sure that her mom did that, but yeah, those things do hurt you get whapped with one. Yeah, I mean, they're hard plastic. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you got like the dollar store version. I don't know. Right. (laughs) Natasha's mom told a reporter that she blames herself for a lot of the things that Natasha got herself into, her mental condition and the whole thing. And she's not wrong. Natasha was terribly traumatized by her mom's mental illness. When she was in fifth grade, Natasha woke up on her own for school, which is odd because her mom always woke her up every morning. You need to get up. You need to go to school. Got her ready for school. She said the trailer was silent. So her first instinct was that her mom had finally left her because her mom used to threaten to leave her all the time. Natasha went into her mom's bedroom and found her mom sprawled out naked on the bed, unconscious with an empty bottle of pills on the floor. Now, Natasha knew that her mom had tried to kill herself. Mm -hmm. 
She didn't want to call 911. She called one of her mom's ex-boyfriends to come over. And he said, you go on to school and I'll take care of this. So he made sure that Madonna went to the hospital. Natasha said that when she went to school, she couldn't focus. And the teacher's like, what's going on with you? What is going on? And she just burst into tears. So, you know, sometimes you don't know what kind of trauma, if you're a teacher, your students are going through. They, no. You know, um, she would not tell anyone what happened to her mom. So she just kept it to herself that day. Now, it was during the transition from elementary to junior high school that Natasha changed dramatically. She went from sweet and preppy to goth. So she started dressing in black, wearing dark makeup. She used safety pin pierce as piercings. She listened to screamo death music, and she talked about being the daughter of Satan. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. Of course, she's going to be alienated from her classmates because of her unconventional behavior. Now, I watched this great documentary, which... Um, will be on the show notes and maybe we can i don't know what yeah it's called six um her and in that her guidance counselor and one of her former teachers were interviewed and they basically said that she was bullied but she drew that to herself because of the way that she dressed mm -hmm. um she would she would she drew negativity from her peers by her appearance and her claims to be the daughter of satan she's antagonized and yes. Fun of her. Yes. Not that it's saying. But it's then okay, she said, you know, like I have powers. I'm going to put a spell on you. So yeah. she was giving it right back, which is not the definition of bullying. But um, she did draw negativity, and you know, to me, if a kid goes from one one aspect to the other, that indicates some sort of trauma or onset of mental right. illness. Yeah. You know, you don't just ostracize. So she was alienated from everyone at school. She was often in ISS or you know, um, suspended and she ended up quitting school, I think in her freshman year. Oh, wow. Natasha and her mom had a love hate relationship because they would fight constantly. Friends testified that Natasha had asked them to help murder her mom. Madonna stated, I couldn't give her the love she needed because she thought I hated her and abused her. Natasha also self-mutilated. She would take razor blades and cut herself. She suffered from anorexia. And she would experience periods of intense depression, followed by periods of intense mania. Mm, bipolar. Yep. She had stopped eating at first. She skipped meals for a day, then a week. And then she says a whole month. She lost 30 pounds in one month. Mm. And when she was in seventh grade, her mom had her hospitalized in Lexington, Kentucky at Charter Ridge Behavioral Health System. None of the doctors who evaluated her diagnosed, diagnosed her with not only anorexia, but also severe bipolar disorder. Good call. Yeah. When they discharged her, they told the girl's mom she was she still needed a lot of help. She is not safe to be out, but we're not going to treat her anymore because the insurance would only pay for 11 days of treatment. So she was released because of payment. Wow. Later on, a forensic psychologist named Helen Simon stated that Natasha had been classified as a danger to herself and to others. So she should not have been released from the hospital before she was fully treated. They let her out and she was already violent. The only thing the hospital administration cared about was the money. They didn't give a damn that she was not safe to be out in the world for herself or for anyone else. Like I said, I watched that, um, that documentary called Six. And in it, Natasha said she quit school early in her freshman year because she was bullied. When she was 14, she was arrested for forgery due to the theft of a box of checks. And she was sentenced to one year of probation. At 14. At 14. Good Lord. She was arrested a second time for assaulting her mother and threatening to kill her with a knife, but her mother dismissed the charges. 
God, it sounds like the best thing they probably should have done was to not dismiss those charges and maybe she'd at least. Right. I mean, I'm not she a might proponent have a of getting kids in the system, but she needed. She definitely. She needed her. to be I mean, in the system. Well, you know, who Ideally, knows, right? Yeah. On her 17th birthday, she got married to her longtime best friend, Stephen Cornett, and their wedding was a black wedding. So it was all like she wore black and um, the black, the bridesmaids had black and it was just very dark and gothic and it didn't last long. He ended up dropping her off at her mom's house and said, um, hasta la vista, baby, because I guess she was too much for him. So wow, she took off to, after that, she left um, Pikeville to go to New Orleans with a friend and she hung out on New Orleans streets. She began abusing drugs, including heroin and alcohol. She continued her practice of self mutilation and she was still wearing black, listening to devil music. And she was very charismatic. So when she returned to Kentucky, it didn't work out. She was actually raped in New Orleans and ended up going back home. Wow. But she wanted to always go back to New Orleans. She just decided she would never go back with unless she had a gun. Yeah. So <laughs> she she comes back home. She moves back in with her mom. And so her trailer becomes like the go-to for all the misfits. Party, yeah. mm-hmm. Yep. It was a teen hangout. One witness testified that everybody went to Madonna's house. There was no guidance or discipline from a responsible adult. Things got a little wild. Young people drank. They did drugs. They dabbled with the occult. Now, this is what the media sensationalized, Right. right? They play with Ouija boards. They burn black candles. They held seances. Apparently, supposedly they drank blood. Um, they had sex. They blared music. Basically, they did whatever they wanted. They drank blood. They drank blood. Yes. Are they celebrities in Hollywood now? Um, no, actually, they're not. <laughs> That's like the recent, you know, conspiracy theory. Oh, is it? Yeah, that I don't know how to say it. Is it QAnon or it's Q A N O N? Okay. And I don't know what it stands for, but they believe that the celebrities, like in the whole pedophile ring, that they're drinking the blood of children. And that's where the whole trafficking thing from, that's the Wayfair crap. Uh, yeah. Like, I'm telling you, rabbit hole. Oh, gosh. Okay. There. Like, I draw, you know, I mean, there's some things I be- uh-huh. I'm like, oh, okay, I might believe that there's a pedophile problem in Hollywood or, you know, in the trafficking and, you know, that. But I, I'm not signing on to drinking the blood of celebrities quite yet. Hmm. I mean, celebrities drinking the blood of children. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. Okay. (laughs) Now, the trailer was also a place for kids who had been kicked out of their own homes. And one of them was a girl named Kristen Sturgill. Sturgill is how I say it, but Mm S-T-U-R-G-I-L-L. And she was 18. She had finally found the guts to open up and tell authorities about her stepfather who had been molesting her for years. Her mom refused to believe her, so Crystal was kicked out of the house. She did move around from place to place and ended up at Natasha's house. She was a decent student, um, but she had been suspended a few times, so she wasn't a great student. But she, you know, she she was a smart girl. Natasha Cornette took her in when she had nowhere to go, but she also took in another girl named Karen Howell. Karen Howell suffered a childhood very similar to Natasha's. They um, characterized by violent fights between her parents when, until they got divorced when she was nine. Karen's IQ was borderline retarded at 78. Oh, wow. But she was beautiful. She also, she had very, uh, she did have academic difficulties. Mm -hmm. 
She reported that she had been sexually abused between the ages of 5 and 10 by an uncle and a cousin. And by the age of 13, she was doing drugs, self-mutilating, and running away from home. What the hell is going on in this town? Right? One source put it this way, and this is a quote. How had a history of resistance to rules and regulations, dysfunction in school, illegal drug usage, runaway behavior, and an interest in witchcraft, where she used a Ouija board? When her mom found out about her fascination with the macabre, she brought in ministers who attempted to cast out demons from her daughter. How claim that she had created love spells to get two boys to date her and that she hears voices. How do these people meet? It's like a magnet. They attract each other. Good grief. So by her early teens, Karen Howell was abusing various drugs, particularly LSD. Oh, well, that's not going to make you want to see, I mean. Right. She wasn't violent to others, though she claimed to have had a bad trip where she half-heartedly tried to eat, chew her friend's arm off. But, right? Like Natasha Karen had attempted suicide numerous times, she cut her wrist twice, and twice she tried to kill herself by overdosing on drugs. She, too, met Natasha at school, and she eventually moved into Madonna's trailer, too. So now you have the three girls living there along with Madonna. And they had boys coming over all ta- at all hours. Well, the boys mm-hmm. are probably taking advantage of, especially if they're, you know, ac- you know not academically. Right. Natasha was dating a boy named Dean Mullins, who was great friends with Crystal Sturgill. And Sturgill, Crystal was upset about Dean dating Natasha because she knew Dean was a good kid and Natasha was a bad influence on him. She didn't say much about this out loud because she's living at Natasha's house at the time. Well, yeah. But she's constantly, like, talking to him, going, you know, you're better than this. You shouldn't hang out here. You're going to get in trouble. Dean's good friend, Joe Reisner, was dating Karen Howell. So it was kind of like, you know, two couples. Yeah. Both Dean and Joe hung out at the trailer all the time. The sixth kid who was a fixture at Madonna's trailer was a kid named Jason Bryant. Everybody believed that he was 17, but he was only 14. What? He looked like he could be 17 because I looked at a picture and he has a really evil, like not evil, that mean face. Like mm-hmm. he doesn't care about anything. This kid has been kicked around a lot. These poor kids. Right. So he met the group one night when he was hanging out on the street corner. <laughs> yeah, I know. Anyway, Natasha approached him because she thought he looked cool and she gave him a kiss on the cheek and offered him some cheap bourbon or something and said, come on over. So he partied at her house often after that. And he was bewitched when she kissed him. He said that she bewitched him by putting a love spell on him. This kid had a violent past of his own, as I said. Supposedly, one of the things he got in trouble for at school was violently pushing a kid down a flight of stairs at school. Good Lord. And he had been in and out of the system. His his mom had left him at birth, and he also had a lower IQ. His dad raised him and his dad. They remind me of the Yules. Like, and have you read To Kill a Mockingbird? Mm-hmm. The Bob Yule family? Like, he's one of those. Have I read To Kill a Mockingbird? I know. I'm just asking. <laughs> Stupid yes. question, I know. All right. So, we're going to fast forward to April 4th, 1997. Or go back to April 4th, 1997. Yeah. These six decided to have a weekend getaway at a cheap hotel called the Kali Hotel. By the way, it's not open anymore. If you really wanted to make reservations, you're too late. <laughs> So while they were there, they supposedly performed various drug and alcohol-raised group sex acts, as well as various occultish occultish acts, such as drinking each other's blood, burning black candles, casting spells, and burning a six in the carpet. Okay, what's with the black candles? Uh, I guess it's it's some sort of spell, like you have cast spell casting thing. I don't know. Do I look like a witch? 
no, or take no. I don't know anything about that, but that was something that kept I, coming out. I really enjoy your friendship, but I'm not drinking your blood. Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> now, now, some people believe that they were trying to burn 666 in the carpet, but one of them said, no, there were six of us in the room because, and that's why we put the six there. Okay. All right. Between their drug and alcohol-fueled spell casting, blood drinking, and sex acts, the six began discussing their desire to leave Kentucky for a place where they would feel more at home. And, of course, Natasha told them all about how awesome her life was when she was in New Orleans. Except for that time I got raped. Except for that time that she got raped. She said, the place is great, but we need to have guns to protect ourselves. She told them about the rape, and she said that, I promised myself then that if I ever go back, I would make sure to have a gun. So the six began crafting their plan, and on Saturday, they continued partying before they hit the road on Sunday. Okay. I've been to New Orleans several times. Mm-hmm. I'm not opposed to going to New Orleans with a weapon. No. <laughs> and, and they would probably fit in better in New Orleans, and they do in this and little that, small yeah. southern town. I mean, they would. They would, like, seamlessly right. fit right, right. in. Right, because it's the more atmosphere. there. Yeah, because. You know, the voodoo and the, you know, all right. that stuff. And, you know, later on, this, they say that the media played that part up way more. There are pictures of the two girls kissing. These are teenage boys. They're all in a hotel. So, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I know why they were there. Yeah. All right. So, the six checked out of the hotel on Sunday morning, April 6, 1997, with a checklist of things that they needed accomplished before they hit the road to New Orleans. They had a checklist. They had a checklist. Yes. They needed guns and money, so they stopped at a friend's house, and they got a gun. They stole it from the friend's parents. They also stopped at Karen's father's house. Now, another article said it was Natasha's dad's house. I'm not sure whose dad, but they stopped at one of their dad's house, Mm -hmm. and they also stole a gun from there as well as some more money. Um, What I do know is that the group of six now had two guns, and they had money to travel. So they all crammed into Joe Reisner's mom's car, which was a beat-up old Chevy Citation. Four people fit comfortably in it. Okay, four. They had six. It was not a comfortable ride. I've never even heard of a Chevy Citation. It's, it's a modern, it's a it's a throwback to like a Chevy Cavalier. It's an old, Okay. it's kind of like a Cavalier now. Like their low model, cheapest okay. model. Um, they had problems from the start. So they were traveling, while they were traveling through Virginia, Reisner got a speeding ticket. They were also all very uncomfortable, and they knew that the car would never get them to the destination because, you know, it had some problems. And so they knew that they had to come up with other options. So they decided they were going to steal another vehicle by hot wiring it. Jason, Jason Bryant, the 14-year-old that they all believe was 17, said, oh, I can hot wire a car. But no, he couldn't. He tried a few times. Couldn't hot wire a car. And he tried numerous times. They would stop at mall parking lots. Um, but it's not as easy to hotwire a car in the real world as it is on TV. Now, at some point, they all agreed that they would have to carjack someone. They decided that they could do it at a mall parking lot, anywhere off I-81. That would be a good idea. Or a rest area. Around dusk. No, this is never a good idea. Well, no. <laughs> it's really not. It's really not. Wow. Now, um... Like, before they left, they told, Madonna, uh, Natasha told her mom, oh, yeah, the word Armageddon's coming, the world's not going to be the same, or something like that. I didn't include it, but I just did. So, anyway, around dusk, when they got to Greene County, Tennessee, Karen Howell and Natasha had to pee. So, Joe quickly pulled into the rest area 
behind a 1987 van. Karen and Natasha jumped out of the car and ran to the restroom. The others just took a couple minutes to get out of the car. They were stretching. They were walking around. So I went to the restroom. And as Joe Reisner watched, a man holding a baby approached Karen and Natasha as they were coming out of the restroom. The man's name was Vidar Lilalid, and he was a Norwegian immigrant. And he and his wife were traveling back to their home in Knoxville. Um, the wife's name is Delphina, and they had their six-year-old daughter, Tabitha, and their two-year-old son, Peter. They were devout Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were on their way home from a Jehovah's Witness conference in Johnson City, Tennessee. Now, after the conference, the family had been invited to go to a restaurant to eat lunch with the other members of their congregation, but money was tight, so they decided they would just stop for a picnic halfway home at the rest area. Now, Vidar must have been on fire after the Jehovah's Witness conference, and he was very devout. And as you might know, Jehovah's Witnesses are called to witness or are proselytized to others in order to spread their good news, hopefully to bring in new converts. He didn't even have to knock on someone's door. Wow. He saw these two goth girls walking out of the bathroom in their dark gothic glory. He's thinking, man, here are two lost souls who need saving. So he approached the two girls and asked them if they believed in God. Oh, God. Did they like, oh, no. Oh, no. I just see them now freaking out. Cornette said, no, God never answered any of my prayers when I needed him. And Reisner, who had been watching the family um, as well as Jason Bryant approached the small group as Vidar pulled out one of his religious pamphlets. The Watchtower. Is that what it's called? I was trying to remember what, what do they call those things? I couldn't remember the name of them, but we used to call them when I was in college, they called them something. I can't remember what they call them, but I don't know. Um, I just know it's like, it's a tracks, tracks, like T-A-R-A-C-T-R-A-C-T-S tracks. Hmm. Yes. Okay. okay. The Watchtower. So. Now, later on, Reisner told the court that Vidar had a pretty thick accent. He was talking about God or something, and he said, Would you like to learn more about God? Reisner said he told Vidar, Well, yeah, sure. So when Delphina and Tabitha came out of the restroom, they started talking to another member of their con congregation, a lady named Karen Sinclair, and they said their goodbyes. And as Karen um, got back in her car, she saw... Delphina had towards a picnic table where Vidar was sitting with six young people. Sinclair, Sinclair waved to them as she drove away. At around 7.30 p.m. that same day, two calls came into the Greene County Dispatch, both reporting gunshots on Payne Hollow Lane. And I bet that's pronounced holler, Payne Hollow Lane. I'm not sure, but that's what I'm going to guess. One of the callers reported seeing two vehicles pull in, but only saw one leave. The other caller was a contractor working on a water tower. He reported hearing two bursts of gunfire, one right after the other, followed by a muddled commotion like children on a playground. When, off when responding officers arrived around 9 p.m., they first noticed headlights shining in their direction. There was a car sitting at about 45 degree angle facing us with the headlights on. That was what immediately got our attention. An abandoned blue Chevrolet Citation with missing plates was stuck on a tree stump in the mud. Four bullet-ridden bodies lay in the ditch, a man and a woman, and a boy and a girl on top of them. Jesus Christ. Who kills a, I mean, who kills anyone? But those kids probably, those babies wouldn't have even been able to identify them. I mean. True that, right? Yeah. So it takes a special kind of evil. It does. To kill kids. It does. To kill babies. Right. It does. 
Now, Vidar and Tabitha Lilith's bodies lay rigid. Their, le- their legs were crushed and marred by tire tracks. Tabitha's body twitched slightly atop of her dad. She was still alive, and she was rushed to Knoxville, and doctors spent the night trying to save her. She was pronounced dead the next day at the University of Tennessee Medical Building in Knoxville. And she was the four-year-old. She was the six-year-old, yes. Six-year-old. Peter lay unmoving atop his mom's corpse. His face was buried in the mud. When the officer bent, knelt down to turn him over, the baby started crying. He was two. Mm. Says, when, he, when I touched the little boy, he started crying. I held him and just stayed there with him in the ditch until the ambulance arrived. I'm sure it was only a matter of minutes, but it seemed like it took forever for them to get there. What do you say to a child that's shot full of holes? I just try to tell him, nobody's going to hurt you. You're going to be okay. Mm. Now, the child would live. He was the only survivor of the shooting. He lost one eye and he had severe spinal damage. And doctors concluded that he would have suffocated if left in the mud much longer. So he did live. What kind of life did he have, though? I, mean, um, I am going to give you some of that because that, you know, a lot of people wondered that in East Tennessee. Like, well, you know, they worried about the sweet little boy who was shot. His family was murdered. And they did like, uh, but I'll tell you a little bit about that at the end. Okay. Oh. So there was an autopsy, and the autopsy determined the family had been lined up along the ditch and shot, with Vidar being the first most likely to fall. The parents had not only been shot, but run over, with Delphina Lily probably probably alive when the stolen van rolled over her. One shot, probably the first, struck the father in the right eye and would have knocked him unconscious immediately. He landed on his back to be shot at least four times. Three shots, all from a 9mm pistol, formed a nearly perfect triangle on his upper right chest. This is a pattern that could have been intentional. Two more shots, one from a 9mm and one from a 25 caliber pistol, had pierced his chest below the right nipple. So he was shot with both guns and there was a pattern of a triangle on there. I mean, I wonder if they did that on purpose or if it well, just that's what, that Well, that's what the prosecution me. believes. They, he believes... That this pattern was like a sign of the devil or, or you know, like a, an occult. But I don't foresee that being easy to do if you're not a skilled marksman. Well, I mean, I these people know. grew up like in the rural, well, you're right. you yeah. know. They, yeah. <clears throat> Delfina, the mom, the, you know, uh, Vidar's wife had most likely been shot first in the left arm by the nine millimeter. The second bullet struck her in the left leg and shattered her thigh bone, bringing her to the ground. Neither wound would have been fatal, and the mother lived to be shot six more times. On the left side of her stomach, Blake found another triangle of gunshot wounds, almost identical to the pattern that was on her husband's chest, and from the same caliber of bullet. A gunshot to the middle of her abdomen by the 9mm and two more in the left chest and abdomen from the 25 caliber rounded out her list of wounds. It was estimated that she could have lived as long as half an hour, which was long enough to see her husband and both her children shot. I cannot imagine. That's like your worst fear as a parent. It is. I mean, like, you better fucking kill me. Right. They did. No, but I'm just saying. All right. So, the little girl had been shot once in the head by a small caliber bullet. And Peter had been shot twice. Once in the head behind his right ear. It came out of his right eye. And once in the back. Both of those from the small caliber gun. Now, the lead investigator on the case still believes that it's a godsend that the killers left the citation behind at the scene because there was no other link between the family and the six strangers except for that car that was left there. There were no tags, but of course, you still have the vehicle ID number, duh, 
and they were able to trace the registration to Kentucky and ultimately to Joe Reisner's mom, Mary Castle. She told police, I hadn't seen my son in two days. I don't know where he is, but I know who he's with and they're missing too. So her son and his friends had decided that there was no way they would be safe in New Orleans because there were too many people who knew that they were going there. So they, the group at that point, decided that their best bet was to get the hell out of the United States. So they drove to Arizona and then straight through the border to Mexico. Do you think they're going to get away in Mexico? I don't know that they're smart enough to get away. Okay. Well, they're all dumb kids. So they actually get into Mexico, but they didn't get far before the Mexican police pulled them over. Shocking. You, you just can't go to Mexico, I guess, unless you have proper documentation. If you get pulled over, you can show car registration and whatnot. And they were unable to produce any documents that the police asked for. Wait, you have to have all your documents in order? Yes. If the police pull you over and you're driving a vehicle, it Shocking. should match your information. Shocking. What well, is this? Are you being sarcastic no, or something? No, you can't just go to a foreign country and not have all your shit in order. Right. Idiots. Okay. True that. Now, the police, uh, the Mexican police asked them to get out of the car. You know, they don't have their documentation. Um, get out of the car. Well, the first thing they notice is that Jason is bleeding. He's got two gunshot wounds. And this is the funniest part. They tell him to get the fuck out of Mexico. You turn your ass around and you go back to the United States. We don't want your shit here. Because you don't want to be in a Mexican jail, first off. Or a hospital. Well, you know what? Mexico has some good they hospitals. They have some really nice. They do. They I do have, have good hospitals. So I'm not going to say that. did all of her like weight loss surgeries uh -huh. and plastic surgeries. Yeah. All of it done like state-of-the-art Mexico. And then I have another friend whose sister did all her um, uh, like drug trial stuff uh -huh. she had brain cancer yeah. and she went to mexico so my sister has ms and she's gone to mexico yeah. a couple of times to um, do research on their ms treatment that supposedly works it's like stem cell stuff that yeah. united states doesn't allow I mean, but it's super expensive Tijuana. well i don't know no. where i didn't ask her where but you know it's state-of-the-art so yeah, yeah. yeah. okay well, where's where's the one place that no, you're not allowed to go as an american um, <sighs> it's juarez yeah, we're not talking war is. Okay. <laughs> it's really bad. You know there. so much more about anything than I do. I'm sometimes so jealous. But. No. Uh, okay. So they notice that Jason's bleeding from the two gunshot wounds. And they order them to get back into the van, go back to the United States, where you belong, and do not come back. So We don't, we don't need this shit here. Right. Now, this <laughs> is uh, um, at the time the U.S. checkpoint all day long their computers had not been working and it just so yeah, happens that it came back online as soon as this 1987 dodge pulls into the u.s checkpoint uh, at 5 p.m and at this time you didn't have to have it wasn't until post 9 11 that you had to have a passport to, to go get into mexico like, yes in canada but you need to have paperwork if you're driving a vehicle and you get pulled over yes. right all right, so when... Border patrol doesn't play. No. And when a border agent asked Joe Reisner who owned the vehicle, he shrugged and said he didn't know. So, of course, there is an APB out on this. They already know that these people are wanted, and they already know that this is a stolen van. Um, they order the kids to get out of the van, and they do a search of the vehicle, which turns up toys. There's a car seat, and there's also the Lily Lid family photos. Each of the six also had a souvenir that was previously owned by one of the Lily family. And Cornette's wallet was a, um, was a photo of a, was a picture of Tabitha and a piece of Vidar Lily's belt. 
The photo on the back said summer 1985, and it said my favorite girl. Mm. Howell had a Hello Kitty diary lock that belonged to Tabitha, and Sturgill had the key ring to the Lilylid home. Why would you keep that stuff? I don't, yeah, that's just I what know. I was thinking. Because they're kids. Right. And they keep stupid shit. Right. So, so when they are, um, when they're taken into the police interrogation room or whatever, all of them have pretty much the same story. Okay. Mm-hmm. He said that Joe pulled a gun out when they, um, when they all went to the picnic table. Um, Vidar is talking and he pulled a gun out, set it on the table and apologized to Vidar in advance. But he said, we need your van. We're all going to take a ride together. Now, Vidar supposedly pled for his family and told Joe, look, take the van, take my money, just leave us here. Don't take us. But Jason was on probation and didn't want any witnesses because, you know, as soon as they drive away, they're going to call the police and there's going to be a lookout for the car. So they didn't want any witnesses. They ordered the family into the van. They had Vidar driving and Dean and Crystal followed them in Joe's mom's car, the Chevy Citation. The two-vehicle caravan made its way to the interstate. The family was scared, of course, and the children, Tabitha, started crying. Jason ordered the mom, Delfina, to tell to make the child shut the fuck up. Oh, okay, because that works. Yeah. Now, Delfina began singing to try to calm the child, but then Jason's like, now you shut the fuck up. Kristen later told investigators that she tried to calm the little girl, and the little girl offered her some Hershey kisses. So the little girl had Hershey kisses and gave a couple to Kristen Howell. Now, the kidnapping and murder of this devoutly religious family taken from the rest area rocked the nation, as I told you at the beginning. Yeah, I've never heard of this either. I had, you know, so you haven't either. Good. Okay. Natasha Cornett's comments made the story go viral, so to speak. So you didn't have the internet, but it went, it was on all, it was splashed all over all the tabloids and everything. I was busy having a baby around that time. Okay. I was in college and working two jobs, so, yeah. When asked for her religious preference on jail intake, intake forms, Natasha Cornett wrote Satan, oh. and that caused a frenzy of interest. This was now a story of good versus evil, God versus Satan. So they took, you know, this devoutly religious family, these devil worshipers collide at a rest area, and it's a battle oh, of good versus evil. Mm-hmm. media sensation, I suppose. <clears throat> Now, in Tennessee, the prosecuting attorney, his last name is Bell. I can't remember his first name. But he imme- immediately filed for extradition um, from Arizona, and he announced his plans to seek the death penalty for all four adults. So Joe Reisner, Natasha Cornett, Dean Mullins, and Crystal Sturgill were all over the age or 18 years old or higher or older, and Howell and Bryant were both juveniles, and they faced potential life sentences. Now, as I said, news of the arrests exploded nationwide, and Cornette's attorney at the time, a guy named Eric Kahn, wanted to capitalize on the evil versus good theme. So he had Cornette, he played her up as leader of the group, and he portrayed them as born killer wannabes. Remember natural born natural killers? Natural born killers, yeah. Yeah, so that, you know, he, he had them played up as being kind of like that, those, yeah. And that was, so God, what, when did that, that movie came out. In the 1990s at yeah, some point. Somewhere. Yeah, And mm-hmm. then that was actually inspired by... A true story. Yeah. yeah. I knew that. I didn't... Uh, yeah. I don't know which one. Oh, we should do that one. Oh. All right. <clears throat> All right. So he fed the media an image of his client as a mentally disturbed outcast with nowhere to turn but devil worshiper. Supposedly, he did this to bolster an insanity plea. However, her second attorney said that he really did it um, to 
gain fame because he wanted the film rights to this. So turn it into a movie. Khan told his client to say she was a child of Satan, among other things, when she gave interviews. And he was later replaced by another attorney, obviously. Now, in March, this is an aside, but in March 2018, about 10 years after the murders, this attorney, Eric Kahn, pled guilty to masterminding the, the largest social security fraud in history, totaling over $550 million. Holy moly. So right now, he's currently sitting in, serve, in, in prison serving a 24-year sentence. 27-year sentence, sorry. Holy shit. 550 million dollars mm -hmm. yeah because i'm like, like where did this guy go so there's a lot of things that i'm leaving out because she would say things like satan will save me and i'm the daughter of satan like sh there were a lot of things so watch that movie that documentary six if you can find it i found it on youtube um it's out there and it it says all that but i you know i'm leaving a lot of that sensationalized stuff out for time well, purposes yeah. you know newspapers and tv stations from knoxville to norway were or no, they were from Sweden, were in the courtroom to cover the trial. So remember that um, Vidar's family was from Sweden. Right. Criminal court judge Eddie Beckner denied the defense's request to try the six separately. So each of the each of the six wanted to have their own trial. He's like, there's no way. That will bankrupt the county. Yeah. We're doing it all one trial. So all six. Now that seems like a violation of rights to me, but... Well, really because Crystal Sturgill, Sturgill and Dean Mullins never got a citation, but they got into the van. They never called anybody along the way. So they're, he said they're just as culpable. He said that, ha like I said, he also ruled that it would be impossible to find a fair jury in Greene County. So he ordered a jury to be bussed in from a county that was 150 miles to the south. And the trial was set for March 1998. That trial never came because on February 20th, 1998, the six defendants took a plea deal in which they all admitted to charges of murder and attempted murder. They oh. all had to agree to this or or, or none it. of them got the deal. All right. Hmm. So the judge asked them, do you all understand what you're charged with? Are you all pleading guilty because you are guilty? And yes, was the answer from each. Wow. Later, they all say, you know, we were young. Nobody told us differently. We didn't have much time to think about it. Like they only had so much time to say yes to this. The prosecuting attorney decided that he would offer the plea because one of his main witnesses, um, an Arizona jailer, had said that Reisner admitted the killing to him while he was on suicide watch. But it turned out that that jailer had a felony arrest record. So that left prosecutors with really just a circumstantial case and no confession. Right. So let's give them the plea deal. I mean, whether it was true or not. His right. tainted right. lifestyle, I guess you would say. Yeah. Why would they let a, a felony jur uh, jailer uh, jailer be a... Uh, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I didn't think yeah. you could be a felon and be a corrections officer. Okay. Yeah. But I guess at that time in Arizona, he was. Maybe this all mm -hmm. happened like in between. Yeah. The I don't know. The yeah. of the trial. It and could be. And a felon and then that. Yeah. Up. I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. sure. I didn't, I didn't dive too deeply into that. Now, before they were sentenced, there was a sentencing hearing, and four of the six, Reisner, Bryant, Cornette, and Howell, testified. Crystal Sturgill did not testify on her behalf, and Dean Mullins did not testify on his own behalf either. They told a generally consistent story up until the moment the van stopped on Payne Hollow Road. Reisner said that they walked the little... Reisner told 
of walking the lily loads at gunpoint from the picnic table to the van. The father offered them his wallet and keys to no avail. When the van doors opened, Reisner started to take the wheel, but Cornette said, no, let Vidar drive. Mullins and Sturgill again followed in the citation. Peter and Tabitha didn't understand what was happening. Delfina began singing softly, and I already told you all this. Reisner, Cornette, and Howell all insisted that Bryant, the 14-year-old, fired every shot, fatal and otherwise, from both guns. Once they stepped out of the van and argued about what to do, kill the victims or let them go, Bryant turned and began shooting, according to Reisner's testimony. Reisner testified he couldn't stand to watch what happened next. He said, I jumped in the van and closed the door and said, oh my God, they're dead. So all of them say that Jason Bryant, the 14-year-old, shot them, all four of them. Wow. Okay. Now, Jason Bryant says, no, I didn't. I bet he does. Right? Bryant says that Reisner and Mullins did the shooting and that the others began hashing out a story to blame him from the day of their capture. So, like Reisner, he claimed he shut his eyes and couldn't bear to watch. Once they realized that they were all facing the death penalty and Jason wasn't is when they all began to blame him, one of Bryant's attorneys wrote in his first appeal. Now, remember that when they got pulled over in mexico that jason bryant had two gunshot wounds yes so he claims that they all said you're underage we're gonna pin the blame on you that way you won't we won't get the death penalty and he said no i'm not doing that and then they shot him they say he shot himself he was playing around with a gun and it went off accidentally shot himself so nobody really knows what's going on by most of the accounts sturgill and even mullins never even got out of the car before a mad rush to get away, they actually were stressed out when they were driving and got the citation stuck over a stump. Then they just abandoned the car. They took the place, got into the van, and he said, Reisner said that when he was swerving, he was nervous and lost control of the van, and that's when he ran over the lilies. That was that was not intentional, he said. Now, the... the Huffing, who is the major detective on the case, he says that he doesn't buy the story of a single shooter. It doesn't match up with forensics. He said he doesn't believe the theory Satanism is a motive. Like, that's being pushed by the prosecutor and the media. He's like, there's no way. He's like, it's a simple motive. They were on the run. They were looking for legroom and a working engine. A lot of people want to bring in good and evil, God and the devil. But what they wanted was the van. This family was an easy target, and they stopped there at just the right time. If the lily lids had been there 15 minutes earlier or 15 minutes later, they might all still be alive. Mm. Now, he's not sure whether any of the six planned to kill anyone when they left the rest area, but he suspects that the group dynamic, three young males high on adrenaline and testosterone, all infatuated with Cornette and Howell, were competing to prove themselves, and that made for a toxic mix. He said, "If it, I think if it hadn't been for Bryant, that's the 14-year-old, the whole shooting might not have happened, but I think there were at least two shooters, one of them Bryant and the other Reisner. They cannot prove that. All six have appealed their sentences, but with little to no effect. Sturgill's sentence was changed to concurrently instead of consecutively. So they all got life terms for each murder, and then they got like 27 years or something for the attempted murder, all to be um, served consecutively. Hmm. However, Sturgill's... Wait, you got a life sentence, which was right. like 25 years. So then they got... 27 years on top of that is that what you said i mean 25 usually. life is more than 25 years like life in at that time was life like life with parole without, without parole oh without okay I life without part. parole okay 
<laughs> they didn't get the death without parole and a 27 year sentence. Yes. To serve consecutively. To serve consecutively. So. What are they going to do? Bring him back from the dead? You've died in here, so you bet we're going to keep Well, there's no here. chance of getting out. Crystal Sturgill took it further. She's like, you know, I just happen to be there. Well, the Supreme Court of Tennessee said, sure. Instead of serving yours consecutively, we'll let you serve it concurrently. So she'll still never get out. So, but that 14-year-old? Oh, that's my next slide. That so go ahead. motherfucker gets a new trial. Okay. So he, he and Karen Howell, she was 17 and he was 14 uh, at the time. You know how I feel about I know. This. I know. I know how you feel about it. Yes. Do you want to tell them about that? The oh, Supreme Court ruling? fucking pisses me off. Okay. I know we talked about this a couple of times, but it's okay. Go ahead. So... The Supreme Court ruled that anyone under the age of 18 cannot get a life sentence without parole because someone has deemed that your brain is not fully developed. Guess what? I don't give a shit. I have a friend who was murdered by a 17 and a half year old and he was sentenced when he was 18. And because of that, he got resentenced. Now, granted, he still had a, he had already spent 25 years in prison so but here's the thing so the judge said they lowered his sentence to 50 years i think but every five years every fucking five years these parents have to come back to court have to sit through and when they do these resentencing they bring out all the photos. Mm-hmm. This is your son. Shot Relirant. 16 times. Yeah. Burned alive. Dragged down a road. His parents have to live through that shit again. And so, in two years, this stupid asshole might get freed. You know, and they're like, oh, well, we don't have grandchildren. And da 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 Well, my friend is dead. His parents won't have his grandkids either. His right, children right. either. And that's the same way with Kristen Howell and Jason Bryant. Every five years, they get a new parole hearing. So Not parole, new not, sentencing. No, they get a hearing for parole. Now, they get new sentences. Okay. They get they get, go through the whole spiel again. Yes. Like, okay. they So, like in our, where we live, mm-hmm. the guy who prosecuted my friend's murderer is running for state attorney. If he wins, someone else comes in and takes over. What if they're not as good? I, I don't. I mean, maybe a 14-year-old, but this guy sounds like he was probably warped from the, the womb. Yes, he's he's a bad, he's, you know, killed animals and things like that. Right. Like, I only went over, like, he pushed the kid down the stairs. But there are other incidences of, you know. And that will play a part. Yes. Because they have a checklist. And I mm-hmm. remember the judge was like, okay, you have to, they have to prove that you're depraved. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, well, hello, my friend was shot 16 times. They stopped counting at 16 because they burned him so bad that they couldn't tell those were brittle pools or not. Right. And he was shot with two different guns. He was dragged down a road and then set on fire. To me, that sounds pretty fucking depraved. Yeah. But... This guy, the reason why, you know, his sentence was shorted to 50 years. Granted, what kind of life is he really going to have if he gets out after 50 years? Anyway, um, he came from a good home. He wasn't abused. You know, all of these things. So that they play that into account. There's like a checklist. Okay, well, if you came, you know, those are what mitigating circumstances. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, well, if you were sexually abused, okay, we, we right. have to consider that or whatever. Um so all of these things, you know, you pushed a guy down the stairs, you were killing all the cats in your neighborhood, that will come into account. They'll be like, yeah, this crazy mm-hmm. guy is probably not ever getting out of jail, but you never know. I mean, there's another girl in a place where we live, 
in a place where we live. <laughs> in the magical place where we live, they killed a taxi driver when she was 15. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Shot him in the back of the head. Well, they're, um, she's trying to get out, too, but I think they were like, yeah, sorry about yeah. your luck. Yeah. So, But all of this came around at the same time that the Supreme Court was saying that you had to have a unanimous decision on death penalty cases. Because the guy who killed the cop in our town, which doesn't happen in our town very like ever, he was trying to get his sentence overturned because it wasn't unanimous for the death penalty. Mm. But I think they said, yeah, right here, buddy. Wow. Okay, so um, I do want to say that all of them are in prison still. Natasha Cornette actually tried to murder someone in prison, so she has had an, an additional charge. Yeah, so she's not. On her, yeah. All right, so remember the little boy who, um, Peter, who was only two when he was shot? Mm-hmm. He lost an eye, suffered permanent neurological damage from the bullet that was fired into his back. He was a lone survivor of the family mass- massacre, and he has no recollection of the rest area, the Thank six God. young Kentuckians, the final resting place of his family, or even of his family. Oh. His dad's sister took him in, and he was raised as one of theirs. So his whole life, he didn't know any of this. But in 2017, on the 20th anniversary of the murders, a Tennessee reporter called him to interview him. He was, yeah. And he told her, he's like, I have no memory of anything. I mean, I was only two when it happened. His dad's family raised him in Sweden, and he is a happy, well-adjusted young man. Good. She asked him if he had anything to say to the people in East Tennessee. I mean, can you imagine this call? Really? She told him that the people of East Tennessee always thought about the Lily Lids. They likened the c- collision of the Lily Lids and the Gothic Six as the battle of good vis- versus evil, as I said. They always thought about the poor orphan boy and wondered how he was doing 20 years after his family was attacked. And he said, I'm not a poor orphan boy. I was raised in a loving family and I never wanted for anything and I have no regrets. He him. said, I feel my life is what it is and I'm happy with it, but it's touching to know there are people somewhere else that you can't meet and know by name who care a lot about you. And I appreciate that. It's nice to hear people still care. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like he is very well adjusted and had a nice life. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. The Lily Lids. And I know that I kind of like slurred that name a few times. Well, it's I, hard to say. I Lily Lids. Lily Lids. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have even been able to say it. Right? (laughs) No, it would have been fun. (laughs) Right? Well, thank you, Mercedes. Golly. Thank you for telling us, you know, these tragic murders, but these killers. It's awful, isn't it? I can't believe I've never heard of it. No. But there are lots of documentaries and stuff out there. Like, the uh, the one called Six was made by that forensic psychologist I was telling you about, Helen Smith. Yeah. And it's it's pretty good. It's rather short. I think it's less than an hour. So I found it interesting, but... Um, it just, it shows some testimony of them and I left a lot of stuff out. So, I mean, go back and look into it if you're interested. Wow. Yep. Well, all right, listeners, don't forget to send us your screenshots of your five star rating and your comments to a true crime.com. Nope. Mm -mm. (laughs) A a true crime podcast at gmail.com. We are super, super excited about our 50th episode and our giveaways, and we want you to win. Yeah, we want you to be the winner. So if you need more info, like our Facebook page. And yes. do we have it posted yet? Like, how do they do this? Is yes. that on our website yet? I have an image. Okay. Um, I don't... I'll have to go to the website. We'll have to put it on our website. <laughs> but 
check it out on our Facebook page. And also, she's been posting on Instagram. She's our social media queen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, that's it. Thanks so much for listening to this week's murder. We appreciate sharing our passion with you. We thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating and a comment. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success. You can do this on your favorite platform. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. We are so grateful to spend our time together and share our murderous stories. Thank you so much for your support. Please recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime-loving friends and family. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You, too, can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash pod. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it wasn't wasn't me. me.